I never got any money from you. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no point in bringing your shotgun or 22 caliber rifle. They won't help you now. This is Encounter 67, Kelly Goblinsville. If you're listening to this around the day of release, we're looking at a case of creepy creatures harassing a family in the dead of night, just in time for Halloween. The Kelly Hopkinsville encounter took place in southern Kentucky, not too far from Fort Campbell, in August 1955, and it remains one of the most fascinating flying saucer incidents, or flying saucer adjacent incidents, of the last 70 years. It's a very well-covered story, and its well-covered nature has led to some conundrums in writing and producing this episode. So much has been said and written about it that the ground is pretty well-covered. Not to the degree of something like Roswell, but still, there's a lot out there. And I made a concerted effort to avoid any of the podcasts out there that have discussed this and tried to refamiliarize myself with the earliest accounts and to approach it a bit like we did our very recent Maury Island or Orfeo Angelucci episodes, looking at it as though for the first time. We'll also be spending a little time tracking the ways the event has been presented over the years. We'll start with the initial news reports, followed by investigations on the scene, both by the police and later efforts by ufological researchers. Then we'll look at some later interpretations. But right now, let's go to Kentucky. So we're going to look at this as close to as it happened as we can, exploring the variations and changes in the story, although we don't really have a lot of variations and changes. It remains remarkably consistent as it's being told. What we do see is is more detail being uncovered. So we'll be starting off with the initial newspaper stories and then the subsequent more specialized investigations. First, a little about the region. Kelly, Kentucky and Hopkinsville, Kentucky are two distinct places, um, but it always gets called the Kelly-Hopkinsville incident. Kelly, Kentucky is unincorporated and is located in Christian County, Kentucky. Google Maps will take you to the map coordinates, but at least when I looked at it the other day, Kelly doesn't even rate a dot with the village's name. The website for the town, kellyky.com, is devoted entirely to the Kelly Little Green Men Days Festival in August every year. This year, they welcomed a cosplay group from Paducah, as well as um, hosted carnival rides for the first time. The whole carnival thing will actually make a little more sense once we get into the story and meet some of the people involved, but I'm not sure that's why they introduced carnival rides this year. All of this sounds way more fun and wholesome than most things connected with UFO events, though. I'm confident that if not for the encounter we're about to examine, Kelly would be one of those places that used to exist, rather than a place with an annual carnival and a website. Hopkinsville, on the other hand, is more substantial. It's the county seat of Christian County, and in the 1950 census had about 12,500 people. By 1960, that would boom to nearly 20,000. So Hopkinsville in the mid-1950s was a city on the move, bolstered mostly by nearby Fort Campbell, a key airborne, airborne easy for me to say, training facility. To be honest, in looking at the history of Hopkinsville, I'm more fascinated by a group called the Dark Tobacco District Planters Protective Association. Listen to this from that font of historical knowledge, Wikipedia. On December 7th, 1907, 250 masked night riders seized Hopkinsville's police station and cut all outside contact. They pursued tobacco executives who bought tobacco from farmers who were not members of the Dark Tobacco District Planters Protective Association and city officials who aided them. Three warehouses were burned. In April of the next year, a tobacco broker in Paducah named W.B. Kennedy wrote to associates in Rotterdam that, quote, Out of all the mischief that has been done, the law has not been able to convict and punish the night riders. They do their mischief in the night, and wear masks, and they have taken a pledge to never tell anybody anything they know, and for this reason it is impossible to get sufficient evidence to convict them. They have gone on with their mischief-making until they have almost ruined the country. 
you know, of all the things that men in masks could be doing that's against the law in turn-of-the-century southern Kentucky, I think uh, messing with tobacco executives is probably pretty acceptable. Sadly, this is the saucer life, not the tobacco racketeering life, so we'll have to leave it there for now. Anyway, these little men. This is how the incident in question initially reached the public in the local newspaper, the Hopkinsville New Era, on August 22, 1955. Story of Spaceship, 12 Little Men Probed Today. I'm sorry, I need to stop there and point out that this may be the first headline where we can make a joke about alien probes based on the content of the headline. Probes. In an alien headline in 1955, what did the editors know about the probes? Why would they use the word probe? It can't be a coincidence. Yeah, it, it can. Okay, let's um, let me try this again without giggling about the word probe. Story of spaceship: Twelve little men probed today. Kelly Farmhouse scene of alleged raid by strange crew last night. Reports say bullets failed to affect visitors. All kinds of investigations were going on today in connection with the bizarre story of how a spaceship carrying 12 to 15 little men landed in the Kelly community early last night and battled occupants of a farmhouse. Most official of the probes was reportedly being staged by the Air Force. More than a dozen state, county, and city officers from Christian and Hopkins counties went to the scene between 11 p.m. and midnight and remained until 2 a.m. without seeing anything either to prove or disprove the story about the ship and its occupants. The farmhouse is located on the old Madisonville Road, about eight miles north of Hopkinsville. The property is occupied by Cecil Lucky Sutton, one of those who reported experiencing last night's phenomena. There were some 12 or 15 persons at the house, including several children, but investigating officers were not able to determine exactly how many of those present actually claimed to have seen any of the little men from the spaceship. Only one other person whom officials quoted directly was identified as Billy Ray Taylor, one account said Taylor is a visitor from Pennsylvania, which recently had a similar report of a spaceship. Neither Sutton nor Taylor was at home when officers returned to the scene this morning. The story broke around 11 o'clock last night when two cars, one bearing a Pennsylvania license, drove up to Hopkinsville's police headquarters. Officers then at the station said the two autos contained at least five adults and several children. All appeared highly excited. Both Chief Greenwell and Deputy Sheriff Batts said they got approximately this story from the still terrified and excited Sutton and Taylor families. About 7 p.m., one of the men went out of the house to get a bucket of water. He saw what looked like a flying saucer come over the trees and land in a field at a point about a city block behind the house. There was no explosion, only a semi-hissing sound, and the watcher returned to the house with the bucket of water. A short time later, somebody reported some little men with big heads and long arms were approaching the house. The men were described as having huge eyes and hands out of proportion to their small bodies. The visitors were wearing what looked to be metal plate. The men got their guns, a shotgun for Sutton and a twenty-two caliber target pistol for Taylor. By and by, one of the little men pressed his face against the window, and the shotgun was fired through the window. The face disappeared. The men decided to go outside and see if the visitor had been hit. Taylor was in front, and when he emerged from the front door, a huge hand reached down from the low roof above the door and grabbed him by the hair. He pulled away, and the two men went on out of the house. One of the strange little men was in a nearby tree, another on top of the house. A blast from Sutton's shotgun knocked another of the men down, but he did not appear hurt. He disappeared in the darkness. Taylor reportedly opened fire on other members of the invading party also, with little effect. The battle went on for some time. When the occupants of the house saw their chance, they jumped into the cars and drove to Hopkinsville for help. Deputy Sheriff Batts said the men told him in all they fired about four boxes of twenty-two pistol shells. The officer quoted a neighbor saying he heard shooting over at the Suttons but distinguished only about four shots and mistook them for firecrackers. Sergeant Dudas was one of two city policemen who reported seeing three flying saucers early one morning last summer. He said, I know I saw them. If I saw them, the Kelly story certainly could be true. Yikes. Yes, a long clip, but uh, I did actually excerpt the article. So that's the first public report. Isabel Davis, whose 1978 examination of the events was published by the Center for UFO Studies, is probably the investigator who did the most in-depth work on this case. And her account 
as part of a, a volume that includes the Kelly Hopkinsville case and other some other humanoid stuff. That's probably the best all-in-one resource for this story, and it goes into much more depth. And we're going to take a look at her description of the events of that night based on reports from the time, as well as her own investigation and interviews that she conducted in 1956. One of the things that Davis does that is incredibly helpful is give us a rundown of who exactly was in this farmhouse on the night of August 21st into the early morning of the 22nd. In the press and subsequent write-ups, this crew would usually be collectively referred to as the Suttons, but it's a little more complicated than that. On the evening of Sunday, August 21st, 1955, the farmhouse was occupied by eight adults and three children as follows. Mrs. Glennie Langford, age 50, widow of Oscar Langford, her second husband. Elmer Lucky Sutton, 25, Mrs. Langford's son by her first husband, deceased Tillman Sutton. Vera Sutton, 29, his wife. J.C. Sutton, 21, Mrs. Langford's son by her first husband. Aileen Sutton, 27, his wife. Mrs. Langford's children by Oscar Langford, her second husband. Lonnie Langford, 12, Charlton Langford, 10, Mary Langford, 7. Billy Ray Taylor, 21, a friend of Lucky's. June Taylor, 18, his wife. O.P. Barker, 30 or 35, brother of Aileen Sutton. O.P. Baker lived in Hopkinsville, but often stayed overnight at the farmhouse where the person with whom he rode to work could pick him up more conveniently than in town. Two other grown sons of Mrs. Langford's first marriage, Tillman Sutton Jr. and Frank Sutton, lived in Hopkinsville proper, and a married daughter, Violet, lived in Michigan. The permanent residents of the farm were Mrs. Langford, the J.C. Suttons, and the three children, but the Taylors and the Elmer Suttons had been staying there for some months. These two couples had been with a traveling carnival. It was there that Elmer had the letters L-U-C-K-Y tattooed on the fingers of his left hand, acquiring the nickname Lucky. This may be an unwarranted editorial comment, but I'm always suspicious of people nicknamed Lucky. So, on the night of August 21st, things begin like this, very much like in the newspaper report, but with a little more depth. Billy Ray Taylor, he's one of the carnies, goes out to the well to get some water around 7.30 p.m. It was at this point he sees something strange in the sky. As he was bringing up the bucket, he said, a silvery object, quote, real bright, with an exhaust all the colors of the rainbow, end quote, came silently toward the house from the southwest about 30 or 40 feet overhead. It continued down the fields on a horizontal course, then it slowed down, came to a stop in the air, and dropped straight down to the ground, seemingly to disappear into the 40-foot gully at the end of the fields. After that, nothing could be seen from the yard where Billy Ray stood. Billy Ray returned to the house and, and told everybody who had seen, and the rest of the household thought this was funny, and in Davis's words, quote, they were not in the habit of taking him seriously, end quote. An hour later, the dog starts barking. They look outside to see what's going on and witness the dog scurrying underneath the house, where he would stay until the next day. Something was glowing in the field. Something was coming toward the house. Approaching from the fields was a strange glow. As it came nearer, they could make out what seemed to be a small man, though a man not much like any they had ever seen before. He was about three and a half feet tall, with an oversized head that was almost perfectly round, and arms that extended almost to the ground. The huge hands had talons at the end of the fingers. The eyes were much bigger than human eyes and glowed with a yellowish light. They were directed neither to the front nor to the side, but about midway between. The whole creature was seemingly made of silver metal that gave off an eerie light in the darkness, like the light from the radium dial on a watch. It raised its hands, like it was being held up in a robbery. It slowly moved toward the back door of the farmhouse. Lucky grabbed his shotgun. Billy Ray grabbed a twenty-two caliber rifle. Now, the newspaper article said it was a target pistol, but I'm inclined to go with Davis's report of it being a rifle, if for no other reason than that a twenty-two rifle might be the most ubiquitous rural firearm in the United States. When the creature was about 20 feet from the house, both men fired at it. The shots struck it, and it did a backward flip on impact. It stood back up and ran back into the darkness. This situation repeated with another creature outside a window. Creature appears, shot, flip retreat. Now, it doesn't really translate to podcast form, 
but Davis provides detailed diagrams both of the farm property and of the house itself that do a lot to make the sequence of events more understandable. The men go outside, and according to Davis, quote, as they started out the front door, there occurred one of the most talked about and terrifying incidents of the story. Taylor went through the doorway first. As he stood under the small, overhanging roof, about to step down into the yard, those behind him in the hall saw a claw-like hand reach down and touch his hair. They screamed at him, and Eileen Sutton seized him to pull him back into the house. Lucky, close behind Taylor, pushed past him into the yard, turned the 12-gauge shotgun up toward the creature on the overhang, fired, and knocked it over the roof. There's one in the tree, too, Billy Ray said. It was on the limb of the maple tree to the right as you leave the house. Both Lucky and Taylor shot at that one, knocking him off the limb. He floated to the ground. They shot at him again, and he, too, scurried off into the weeds. Almost at the same moment, around the northwest corner of the house, right in front of Lucky, came another one or the same one that had been knocked over. The creatures moved fast, so fast. Were there many of them, or only a few that moved so quickly that they appeared to be in several places at once? It was difficult to tell. What Davis does assert is that the numbers reported in the press, as many as 15, were almost certainly exaggerated, in her words. The firearms were having no effect, and everyone hunkered down in the house, still observing the creatures while trying to figure out what to do. Davis explained that the creatures moved strangely, slowly, with their hands up in the air. Glennie Lankford, the matriarch of the household, would posit that this was attempt at communication, which I think is a particularly insightful observation to make. As we'll see a little bit later, um, Ms. Lankford, Glennie Lankford, was um, by far one of the most even-keeled of the people who were involved in this incident, and her reactions and interpretations of what was going on were much more level-headed than, well, much more level-headed than I would have been if confronted with this. When these creatures were shot out of trees or off the roof, they were affected by the impact of the bullet or the, the shotgun shell shot, but not actually apparently harmed. They floated to the ground instead of falling, seemingly not affected by gravity the way we would expect them to be. While they approached slowly, they were also, as, as Isabel noted, capable of incredible speed. With their long arms reaching to the ground, they, quote, seemed to furnish most of the propulsion. So they're using their arms to propel themselves along. The legs, Davis, Isabel Davis says, were mostly for balance, it, it appeared to the witnesses. And despite being called little green men later on, including in the town's festival, green doesn't really seem to be part of the palette, at least initially. Except for the big glowing yellow eyes, the creatures were the same color all over. In the dark, this was a phosphorescent or luminescent glow, but when a light was turned on them, this changed to a dull metallic look. The body surface gave the witnesses the impression that it was skin. If it was some kind of a spacesuit, as has been suggested, it covered them completely. The glow of the bodies increased when they were shot at or shouted at, as if noise affected the luminosity. The strange triangular ears, large, floppy, wrinkled like leather and pointed at the top, were seen by the women as extended somewhat outward, by the men as closer to the head. There was no hair, no indication of sex, and they gave off no smell. They were silent. They were not hostile even when shot at, although, as Davis notes, quote, we do not even know that they recognized the shooting as a sign of antagonism, end quote. It kept up, over and over. The visitors were relentless. But as their invulnerable visitors returned again and again, matters got worse. Mrs. Lankford did not panic. Quote, I kept trying to get him to come in the house and shut the door. The things weren't doing us any harm, end quote. But the other women were increasingly terrified. The children were frightened, too, in spite of efforts to reassure them and even to prevent them from seeing the creatures at all. But they could not be kept in bed. At least once, one child was in the front yard when a creature was seen and fired at. And by the time the family left the house, one child was screaming with fear and had to be carried to the car. So a child is being carried to the car because this state of affairs ended around 11 p.m. with a desperate dash to these cars to head into Hopkinsville and seek help from the police. Given the events, the fact that shots were fired, and the general weirdness 
there were a number of investigations that occurred in, in pretty quick order. Local and state police jumped into action that very night, Sunday night, August 21st, 1955. From 11.30 p.m. Sunday to around 2 a.m. Monday morning, police combed the farm and the surrounding area. And one thing that jumps out in the accounts given is that the police in Hopkinsville, the, the city police there, the Christian County Sheriff's Department, and also the state police all responded very quickly. There are numerous examples of police heading to the area at high speeds, like 70, 80 miles an hour, which on narrow country roads in the dead of night wasn't something done frivolously. Another thing that comes through very clearly is that the witnesses were deeply affected by what they'd experienced. One person, who Davis describes as a skeptic, said this. One thing's sure, those women were scared green. And the Hopkinsville police chief noted the following. Something scared those people. Something beyond reason, nothing ordinary. These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. When they feel themselves threatened, what they do is reach for their guns. And the skeptic chimes in again on the subject of Billy Ray Taylor, who demonstrated physical signs of stress, including a heart rate of 140 beats per minute. Maybe the boy could pretend to be frightened in some ways, but I don't know how he could make his heart beat twice as fast as usual. So fairly quickly, it's pretty well established that the witnesses are viscerally reacting to something. As for corroborating evidence, that's a different story. With regard to an actual saucer or craft, however, we do have this tidbit. Shortly before this, the exact time cannot be established, but it was sometime about the beginning of the night's investigation, occurred the strange incident of the meteors. One of the state police reported that at Shady Oaks, a restaurant two or three miles out of Hopkinsville toward Kelly, he had heard several meteors passing overhead, quote, with a noise like artillery fire or whining, and had looked out of his car in time to see two of them. They were traveling in a slightly descending trajectory from approximately southwest in the general direction of the Sutton Farm. So something was in the sky, and then it wasn't in the sky. It was headed downward. Despite the interesting nature of that comment, as I, as I worked on this episode, all I could think was that the Shady Oaks restaurant, I just, for some reason, I really imagine it having the best pancakes ever. I'm cutting things like pancakes out of my diet right now, and I really want pancakes from the Shady Oaks restaurant. Anyway, over the course of the night, in addition to cops from three departments, there were also MPs from Fort Campbell who arrived at the farm, as did numerous reporters and photographers from Hopkinsville and from Madisonville, which is about 35 miles away. The police made a thorough search of the house and premises, and, and, and indeed, the, the Suttons would not go back into the house until it had been searched. One of the points Davis raises here would be significant down the road. Chief Greenwell supervised a thorough search of the house, the yard, and outbuildings. Without making a point of it, he looked for evidence of drinking. None was found, either by him or any other investigators, to several of whom the same thought had occurred. Mr. Ledwith noticed a few beer cans and a rubbish basket the next day, but the second point on which everyone I talked to seemed to agree was that there was no evidence that anyone at the farmhouse had been drinking. When interviewed by station WHOP, Mrs. Langford stated that liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. Nevertheless, when Lieutenant Colonel Spencer Whedon of ATIC referred to the Kelly case on the famous Armstrong Theater of the Air program on January 22, 1958, he allowed himself to hint broadly that liquor had been responsible for the whole story. We'll get to Mr. Ledwith in a bit, but Spencer Whedon of ATIC, the Air Technical Intelligence Center, the folks doing the Blue Book stuff, he did indeed hint very broadly about liquor being part of this entire affair in Hopkinsville. Now, that 1958 Armstrong Theater show was the subject of an episode we did a while back in which we discussed the supposed censorship of NICAP chief Smilin' Donnie Kehoe. He wasn't censored, I just want to make that clear, but go back and listen to the episode. Anyway, here's a brief clip from that program in which the Hopkinsville affair is discussed. And listen to what Lieutenant Colonel Spencer Whedon says and how he says it. Well, here's another case, Colonel Whedon. The date, August 1955. The place, Kentucky. Now, according to press reports, an entire family 
was besieged all night by goblin-like creatures reported to have emerged from a flying saucer that landed nearby. Here is a sketch of one of these extraterrestrial visitors drawn by a local artist and sworn to as accurate by the family. One of your investigators didn't get a chance to interview him, did he, Colonel? No, unfortunately, he didn't seem to be around, Mr. Edwards. But we did interview the family. Now, they had spent the evening attending a spirited meeting. They'd all undergone a tremendous emotional experience, which quite possibly might account for the incident. I suppose this whole UFO situation is complicated by, by crackpots, publicity seekers, and hoaxers, is it not? Oh, it definitely is, Mr. Edwards. One of the roughest areas involves the so-called contact sightings. Now, there's a lot of stuff wrong with this, and there's a lot of stuff going on. And that is an oblique reference, a spirited gathering. That's so oblique as to be deniable if somebody pushed them on it. Another problem I have with this is we sent an investigator down there. There is there. That's incredibly disputable. That is so disputable as to be, I'm not going to call Lieutenant Colonel Whedon a liar. He's probably an honorable man who has served his nation. Well, this is messed up. So even more objectionable than the, the reference to a spirited gathering, maybe not more objectionable, but as objectionable, was the way that both the host and Lieutenant Colonel Whedon used the Hopkinsville case as a segue, not only to the discussion of, of shady contactees, but, but hoaxes and fraudsters, as we heard at the end of that clip. So basically, the experiencers in Kentucky were in rapid succession, dismissed as drunks, then equated with hoaxers and shady contactees. It's a good example of why the saucer scene had such disdain for the Air Force in the 1950s and 60s. Throughout this Armstrong theater show, Whedon comes across as a a condescending jerk. And that is is sort of a microcosm of how groups like NICAP and APRO felt that they were being treated by the Air Force in general. I'm I'm sorry, I deviated from the script in, in... in this because I, I don't know every time I hear that that clip I just get hot because it really makes me mad <sighs> okay back in Kentucky things remain weird at the old Sutton place despite the absence of goblins police chief Greenwell describes the scene as being somewhat strange in and around the whole area the house the fields that night there was a weird feeling it was partly uneasiness but not entirely everyone had it There were men there that I'd call brave men, men I've been in dangerous situations with. They felt it too. They've told me so. So there's a weird tension in the air, and I would think that the combination of the late night, the strange story told by the witnesses, and the witnesses' palpable fear and confusion would absolutely put people on edge. Davis also relates a story that would appear in most retellings of the night's events. One of the investigators inadvertently stepped on the tail of a cat that was in the tall grass, and the the cat just let out this yell, and all the cops just draw their guns right away. People are on edge here. As far as what they found, apart from some spent shotgun shells and the holes that the weapons made in the farmhouse, there wasn't much. As Davis reports, quote, There were no footprints on the hard ground, no spaceships, and above all, no little men in fields or woods, end quote. The law enforcement officers and reporters had cleared out by about 2 a.m., having found, as the newspaper said, nothing to either prove or disprove the story. But the residents of the Sutton farmhouse wouldn't sleep that night, because the creatures came back. Glenny Langford had gone to bed, and she saw one of the little men at her window, his hands on the screen, and accompanied by a glow. It stared through the bedroom window, and she summoned the others into the room. Lucky declared he was going to shoot at it, despite Langford's protests. To the surprise of no one who'd been paying attention the entire evening, it had no effect, and the creatures continued to be sighted throughout the night, with the last glimpse caught at 5.15 a.m., Monday, August 22nd. In a moment, we'll look at the aftermath of these encounters and some of what's been said about this very strange, very singular event in the years since. But first, let's take a look ahead. The next time on The Saucer Life, 
The zine scene returns, and we're going to be tackling the 1990s. In some ways, a golden age. In some other ways, an era of credulous derivative garbage. Which is which largely depends on your point of view, but we'll try to present examples of both. From glossy newsstand magazines to photocopied folios that present much narrower and stranger perspectives. In the meantime, you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife, or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show, if you haven't, wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and more. For now, though, let's go back to Kentucky. The investigations continued the next day, with local radio station engineer Bud Ledwith taking part in interviewing witnesses. It was Ledwith who uncovered the possible overflight of military aircraft that morning, seen by a neighbor who had gone hunting with Billy Ray Taylor. In general, though, the role of military authorities is unclear. Davis reports that Blue Book records indicate that the incident was, quote, never officially reported to the Air Force and thus not investigated. And if that's the case... What the heck was Lieutenant Colonel Whedon talking about on the Armstrong Circle Theater? He was talking nonsense, as we have suspected. An article in the Evansville, Indiana Press newspaper claimed that a Major Albert Corrin came in from nearby Fort Campbell to investigate, but people at Fort Campbell had no record of this. Police Chief Greenwell insisted that Air Force personnel from Fort Campbell which is an army base, so odd, were there, as well as officials from the airport in Louisville, and he told Davis he thought that the Louisville airport people might have worked for civil defense authorities. So Bud Ledwith conducted interviews with the witnesses, and his report is part of the volume published by the Center for UFO Studies. It was Ledwith who, working from Billy Ray Taylor's description, produced the classic drawing of the little men from Kelly, and you have... throw it in your Google machine, you have seen this picture before. It is one of the classic 1950s images. So by this point, news reports and wire reports were flying around the country, bringing a lot of unwanted attention to the residents of the Sutton farm. Suspicions and suggestions that this was a hoax or the result of drunken shenanigans circulated. Suttons were inundated with sightseers and In an ill-advised move that probably owed much to the carnival background of some of the witnesses, they put up a sign informing people that there was an admission fee of 50 cents, information about the sighting cost a dollar, and taking pictures required a $10 payment. Oh, you know what's coming next. That's right. It's, what would that cost today? So, 50 cents in 1955 would be about five bucks today. A dollar would be about $10, and the $10 photo fee would be $94 and change. That's a lot of money to take a picture of something that wasn't actually there at the time. So this money-making sign or attempt at a money-making sign bolstered the opinion among some that this was a, a hoax. It was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a scam to make money. Davis, however contends that it was actually a desperate attempt to encourage looky-loos from hanging around the farm and bothering the people. And and when you look at the prices, that does make a lot of sense. Want to take pictures? That's a hundred bucks, pal. Might be a good way to make people go away. However, regardless of the intentions, it didn't keep people away and it didn't do the Sutton crew's reputation much good at all. But things would eventually die down over the months that followed. And the next year, 1956, when Isabel Davis came to investigate, she found the members of the Sutton family, especially uh, Glennie Langford, very, very reluctant to talk to her. It took a long time, a lot of patience, and a lot of demonstration of goodwill and genuine curiosity about the event to get the witnesses to open up in any sort of real and significant way. But things did die down, like I said, and the common skeptical explanation would be to blame this on a misidentification of an animal. For example, the great horned owl is one that shows up a lot. In general, 
skeptics pointed to the lack of physical evidence. Marks, there were no marks made by creatures such as footprints, or, or there was no blood or other tissue that we could assume could have existed as a result of the creatures being hit with the bullets. No one but the Sutton family saw the creatures, although we should note that at least one neighbor saw some kind of glow coming from the farm around 7.30 on the 21st. But despite this, there was no evidence of a ship, no evidence of a crash. But Isabel Davis observes that in many UFO landing cases, there there are no lasting physical signs of landing. And she also wants to know, and so do I, if anyone took Geiger counter readings of the gully where the landing slash crash supposedly happened. Skeptics have also claimed that some of the holes in the farmhouse made by firing at the creatures were faked. In particular, the hole in the screen door caused by firing at the creature through the screen of the screen door was argued by some to be a sort of square shape and the same shape and size of the stakes that were used to support growing tobacco plants, and and this was a tobacco farm. Davis very carefully responds to this and all the other charges in her discussion of the case and also addresses, and this is important, I think, the, quote, status, reputation, and character of the family, end quote. The farmhouse had no running water, no phone, no radio, no books, not even much furniture. She estimates that the education level among the people in the household topped out at about fourth grade, but she emphasizes they were not paupers, not hillbillies. They were operating an independent family farm. They were making mortgage payments on the land. They were making payments on the equipment. They weren't, they weren't sharecroppers. They weren't tenants. They were business people. The women in the household had employment and social ties to the town of Hopkinsville. Two of the men in the household were employed in Hopkinsville. These weren't people isolated in some holler living out some sort of 19th century Hatfield and McCoy style existence. Davis argues that despite their status as solid working class yeoman farmers, their economic, educational, and social level was lower than that of most of the investigators and many of the townspeople. And it was hard for these substantial citizens to avoid an a priori bias against these country people. This bias was revealed in statements like the following, quote, country people are ignorant, uneducated, easily frightened, end quote. Quote, they're the class of people I wouldn't believe anything they said, end quote. And, quote, people like that can dream up anything. Even in the face of this rank snobbery, we have to acknowledge that Billy Ray and Lucky being carnival workers tended to exacerbate the status issues that were present. Davis explains, quote, the assumption is that their occupation, with its strong aroma of trickery, would have taught them how to swindle the public and given them a taste for doing so, end quote. Davis does an excellent job dismantling many of the arguments that this was a hoax, and I strongly encourage you to check out our work, which is linked to in the show notes. But before we look at the wider impact of the case, I want to touch a little further on this issue of class and status because there's something interesting going on here and elsewhere in ufology. In looking around for various takes on on the, the case, I came across an interesting range of opinions, especially about class. Annie McPhee, in an article about the event that I think came out in 1994, says the following. Because of outlandish exaggeration and derisive treatment in the press, the story was generally disbelieved at the time, but careful investigation by responsible researchers has turned up no evidence of hoax or deceit on the part of the witnesses. That they were uneducated hillbillies seems to have been most people's reason for doubting their word. So that's very similar, I think, to the attitudes reported by Isabel Davis. Now, in 1998, Carol Ann Barnett would use her own experience growing up in the region to conclude this. Based on my experience of the region, I would testify to the fact that no one in that area would consider making up anything remotely like what the Suttons and Taylor said they saw. The residents of southwestern Kentucky are people who, even now, are largely religious and, I mean no disparagement, conformists. To make up a story like this, one would run the risk of being branded as insane or a congenital liar with a pox on their family to boot. The ridicule, the contempt, the ostracism, the media circus, no one would risk it. It just wouldn't happen. Unless it really happened. 
Not to put too fine a point on it, but small-town southerners are cloistered away and, in a sense, protected from other cultures, not just alien ones. Southerners don't venture far from their homes, usually, and the constant interaction among the townsfolk tends to reinforce certain ideas. One idea that is profoundly reinforced is that there are no such things as aliens, and anyone who says that they are, are either bedeviled, bewitched, or terminally bewildered. We need not wonder why the Suttons and Billy Ray Taylor moved from the area soon after the incident. So this is weird, and the, the class or status argument seems to swing both ways. On the one hand, as McPhee and, and indeed Davis said, it, it's wrong to doubt their word based simply on their socioeconomic status or education. But then an argument like Barnett's goes in, in a, a weird sort of direction. She's arguing basically that because of their socioeconomic status or education, it's wrong to disbelieve them. They are telling the truth because, after all, these are simple people. They don't know anything about this, and they certainly wouldn't cause any trouble. They're isolated, you know? They're isolated up there in the hills. In its way, Barnett's argument is based just as much on stereotype and snobbery as those accusing the Suttons of faking their encounter. Deception and greed aren't exclusive to those who've been formally educated. Not that I'm saying the Suttons were deceptive or greedy, but the, the sort of, oh, well, they're simple, they're simple hill folk. You know, we, we, can, we can believe what they say because, oh, people like that don't lie about things like this. And everybody knows Southerners are opposed to aliens, I guess. So while the investigations would end, the story would remain in the broader constellation of bizarre saucer stories, and reporters would invoke it from time to time. Here's an example from the October 9th, 1955 edition of the Albuquerque Journal uh, detailing another Kentucky UFO story. And although this was, I found this in the Albuquerque Journal, it was a wire service report. So this was around the country in various newspapers. Visitors from outer space concentrate on Kentucky. Dateline, Lancaster, Kentucky, Associated Press. If there are beings from outer space, and if they have the means to travel to Earth, they must certainly have heard about Kentucky's fine horses, excellent bourbon, and pretty women. At least, they seem to show up over Kentucky fairly often. The latest report came from Deputy Sheriff Oki Montgomery. The sheriff said he and his wife spotted 18 unidentified objects in the Scotts Fork section of Girard County. The sheriff described the objects as the most fascinating sight I've ever seen, and said they deliberately were not airplanes, balloons, or sky reflections. At times, he said, the formations appeared oval-shaped and about six feet in diameter. He said the oval objects were snow-white, and that some round ones took on the look of a huge ball of fire. Another report of unidentified objects came out of Hopkinsville, Kentucky recently, when a farmer claimed an alien spaceship landed on his farm and disembarked a crew of little green men. That's actually a fairly loose interpretation of what happened in Hopkinsville slash Kelly, but this illustrates that that this story becomes one of the go-to stories when little men, Kentucky, or both are mentioned in connection with UFOs. In any case, let's move on to some of the impact of this case and interpretations and how some have discussed it or dealt with it. J. Allen Hynek, who had been scientific advisor to Project Blue Book, talked about the Kelly Hopkinsville case in his book, The UFO Experience. The Kelly Hopkinsville case, if considered entirely apart from the total pattern of UFO sightings, seems clearly preposterous, even to offend common sense. The latter, however, has not proved a sure guide in the past history of science. Blue Book records on this event are sketchy, and little or no investigation was conducted. Still, the case is carried in Blue Book files as unidentified. That much it certainly is. So the, the lack of a thorough look at this by Blue Book, hello, Colonel Whedon, um, reinforces the idea that this was a very atypical case. There, there was a contact with no underlying message, creatures that were odd and sinister but not actually violent. It's weird. Jacques Vallée uh, visited, or not visited, listed Kelly Hopkinsville in his catalog of cases in his book Passport to Magonia. The book, which I believe we've mentioned before, addressed the parallels between some aspects of folklore and the UFO phenomenon. While I recommend the entire book, this passage struck me as particularly relevant. What does it all mean? 
Is it reasonable to draw a parallel between religious apparitions, the fairy faith, the reports of dwarf-like beings with supernatural powers, the airship tales in the United States in the last century, and the present stories of UFO landings? I would strongly argue that it is, for one simple reason. The mechanisms that have generated these various beliefs are identical. Their human context and their effect on humans are constant. And it is my conclusion that the observation of this very deep mechanism is a crucial one. It has little to do with the problem of knowing whether UFOs are physical objects or not. Attempting to understand the meaning, the purpose of the so-called flying saucers, as many people are doing today, is just as futile as was the pursuit of the fairies. If one makes the mistake of confusing appearance and reality, the phenomenon has stable, invariant features, some of which we have tried to identify and label clearly. But we have also had to note carefully the chameleon-like character of the secondary attributes of the sightings, the shapes of the objects, the appearances of their occupants, their reported statements, vary as a function of the cultural environment into which they are projected. So there are commonalities throughout human history with these strange kinds of visitations and events, and they, they take on the appearance, they, they take on the contextual sort of trappings of their environment in the particular time and place they emerge. Now, Heineck, in his discussion of Hopkinsville, does refer to Valet's ideas. The humanoids are themselves a prototype that has occurred again and again throughout the years, as Valet so convincingly points out, to the myths and legends of many cultures. It is highly improbable that the Suttons were aware of UFO lore and could have known that many times in the past, creatures like those they had delineated had been described. The resemblance to the little people described by many cultures is striking. We are not, of course, justified in concluding that the Kelly creatures stem from the imagination alone, or conversely, that the source of ancient legend lies in the actual appearances of such creatures in the past, or that real humanoids were seen. As in other aspects of the entire UFO phenomenon, the call is clearly for more study. Here, Hynek seems to say, settle down. We don't know what happened. Let's keep looking. That's good advice. Now, you know it wouldn't be an episode of The Saucer Life if there wasn't at least a hint of government chicanery. H.P. Alberelli's 2009 book, A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, is, is a very long book. But it's got some interesting material in it that's relevant to what we're doing here. I may be misremembering, but I think I first heard about this in something from Nick Redfern. Of course, you could take almost anything related to UFOs and or government secrecy, and odds are Nick Redfern has mentioned it at some point. Anyway, in amongst this very interesting book about how CIA experimentation led to very shady things and numerous deaths is our connection to our subject for today. Things begin when Sidney Gottlieb, a CIA chemist involved with various nefarious activities, including the notorious MKUltra mind control experiments, had a job for a man named John Mulholland. Mulholland was a stage magician and was instrumental in adapting stage magic for espionage purposes and authoring the CIA Manual of Trickery and Deceit, or Deceit and Trickery. I can never remember which it is. Alberelli tells the story this way. Sometime in 1956, and again in early 1957, Sidney Gottlieb asked magician John Mulholland to examine the ever-expanding number of UFO sightings and to render his opinion. Gottlieb, most likely acting on behalf of someone at a higher level within the CIA, perhaps knew that Mulholland had a firm bias against the possibility of unexplained aerial phenomena. In 1952, Mulholland had written a somewhat narrow-minded article for Popular Mechanics claiming that all UFOs were pie plates controlled by string. Upon reading the piece, a number of credible scientists, as well as Pentagon officials still alarmed by unexplained UFO sightings, privately wished that the entire matter were as simple as Mulholland put it. But for the Army and CIA, as is well documented today, it was not that simple. In early 1956, the agency asked Mulholland to, quote, discreetly investigate events surrounding an unidentified aerial object and related phenomena witnessed in the skies and on the ground in Kentucky. That was, of course, the Kelly-Hopkinsville incident. Alberelli goes on to summarize the events, but reports that, quote, unfortunately, there are no known documents that reveal Mulholland's investigation, findings, or any report by him on the Kentucky incident, end quote. Interviewed later in life, 
Gottlieb denied ever having heard anything about the Kelly incident during his time at the CIA. So it's documented that Mulholland was asked to look into it, but that's the extent of the written record. So what does this mean? Who knows? Except that it's another example of the CIA slash the intelligence community having an interest in the UFO phenomenon and adjacent happenings at the time. And this was usually, at least according to most of the records we have, within the context of being concerned about Soviet technology or some aspect of psychological warfare efforts. And the presence of someone like Gottlieb connected to MKUltra sort of bolsters that psychological warfare aspect. Moving closer to the present, the Kelly Hopkinsville incident is bizarre enough with a strong enough narrative as well as being well-known enough that it serves as an example of ways the UFO world can blur into areas that are also strange but somewhat distinct other paranormal areas. The late Mac Tonys, who died 10 years ago this month as of this recording, discussed the Kelly Hopkinsville case on his blog, Post Human Blues, on March 18th, 2007. This was slightly revised in his for his posthumously published book, The Crypto Terrestrials. This is what he originally wrote on his blog. This is an excerpt. This is not the whole thing, but this is Mac's um, discussion of Kelly Hopkinsville. The Hopkinsville goblins are an intriguing fusion of the real and the magical. Their abilities seem calculated to tarnish an empirical approach to the extraterrestrial hypothesis by introducing elements of the fantastic. Indeed, these same elements would eventually be used as ammunition by would-be skeptics determined to denounce the account. UFO researchers like their aliens to abide by 20th century preconceptions of what alien beings should look like. Entities like those observed in Hopkinsville comprise a kind of viral assault on conformist ufology by insinuating themselves into reigning conceits and quietly subverting ETH dogma. Their existence is marginalized and becomes less ufological than Fortean, were asked, in effect, to consider the Hopkinsville visitors and their like as somehow separate and distinct from hardcore case files that more readily suggest extraterrestrial visitation. We do so at our peril. While one can argue endlessly in favor of a literal extraterrestrial interpretation, a holistic approach leads us to consider that the UFO intelligence not only wants to perpetuate itself via dramatic encounters with ostensible occupants, but intends to discredit its own machinations. It stages exciting UFO events that infect both the research community and the popular imagination, knowing that the phenomenon's inherent absurdity will eventually undermine attempts to arrive at an indictment. Our infatuation with the unknown is systematically provoked and dismantled by a mimetic campaign that's never less than astute in its grasp of human belief. Mack's discussion of the Kelly incident echoes the ideas of valet, but also imbues the phenomenon itself with a personality of its own, one that delights in playing games with its targets or subjects or victims, select whichever term suits your current mood. Valet's writings connect ufological events to the broader spectrum of folklore. Mac Tony's riff on that was to ponder the possible source of both the traditional and modern encounters that are in some ways represented by what happened in Kentucky. I attempt to reconcile mythological and contemporary accounts of little people into a coherent picture. I propose that at least some accounts of alien visitation can be attributed to a humanoid species indigenous to the Earth, a sister race that is adapted to our numerical superiority by developing a surprisingly robust technology. While existing at the very margins of ordinary human perception, they have succeeded in realms practically unexplored by known terrestrial science, reinventing themselves at will, and helping orchestrate a misinformation campaign of awe-inspiring scope. That was from uh, Mac's posthumously published book, The Crypto-Terrestrials, his, his name for this supposed group of, of beings that he uh, that he speculated about and, and, and thought about. And in many ways, his crypto-terrestrial ideas were, were more of a thought experiment than a, I've got a serious theory about what might be going on. And I think that makes it more, uh, more interesting. Something crucial here is the notion of this perpetuation of mimetic activity. Something, something, whatever this something is, is keeping these themes and images churning in our psyches. So the goblins of of Kelly, Kentucky, uh, remind people of, of 
you know, fairy lore or other aliens they've seen. So these images keep surfacing from time to time. There are links to um, Mac's blog post that I quoted, as well as to the Crypto Terrestrial book in the show notes. And on, on the sort of the, the 10th anniversary or, or at least the anniversary month of his passing, I encourage you to pick up the uh, slim but significant volume if you've not already done so. And I know I've mentioned this several times. And do check out the blog posts as well. Mac always had a, a good cadre of commenters um, that are always worth reading. And this was back when significant and interesting conversations did actually take place in comments of blog posts. So bringing things a little more up to date even than that, in 2012, paranormal investigator and writer Greg Newkirk revealed in an article at weekinweird.com that he had, out of nowhere, received an email from a man who lived in eastern Kentucky near the West Virginia border. He claimed he and his family were nightly assaulted by creatures that I have come to believe are of an extraterrestrial origin. These beings appear to be the size and stature of a small child, devoid of any facial features save for large, oily eyes and lipless mouths. They frighten my children by peering through their bedroom windows, chirping at one another. They actively attempt to enter my home in the middle of the night. Last month, they took my dog. The investigation that followed would form the basis of Hellier, a five-part documentary series that premiered in early 2019. Hellier blends an amazing array of paranormal, occult, and ufological ideas and notions in a way that feels remarkably authentic. It was a big hit here at Chizo Media Headquarters. I discussed it a bit um, in more detail in Encounter 48, Watch This, Don't Watch That, back in February of 2019. And if you haven't heard yet, a second season of Hellier is imminent, and I am looking forward to it greatly. This is this Kelly Hopkinsville incident as we approach the one hour mark on this episode, it's one of the few incidents that tends to keep me up at night. It keeps me up at night and it keeps me away from the windows when it's dark outside. It also puts me in mind of a dream I had when I was a kid. No, wait, come back, we're almost done. Anyway, I was about four or five or maybe three or four and I had a dream don't laugh. I had a dream that President Jimmy Carter went to the moon and met the moon leprechauns. How is this relevant? I'm not sure it is, but it always comes to mind when I encounter ufological stories that have folkloric elements. And by folkloric elements, I mean things that might kind of look like elves or something. I'm, I'm being very broad here. But You've got people like Jacques Vallée, you've got people like Jean Keel, and actually, doesn't it seem, I'm, I'm getting old here, doesn't it seem like every decade or so people realize that Jacques Vallée and Jean Keel existed and 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 discover them and, and discover books with fairy stories and, and, and sea monsters and things like that? Believe me, kids, live long enough and you'll see at least three cycles of paranormal buffs recognizing parallels between folklore and flying saucers. I'm not mad at it. I find it charming and reassuring that people see these patterns. But this dream always reminds me of a time when I didn't know what aliens were, and my only experience of fairy folk was, you know, wishing my mom would buy Lucky Charms instead of generic Cheerios because I saw the leprechaun in the commercial. But that dream happened. It blended space stuff and archaic Earth stuff in a way that many have assumed or, or wanted to believe that cases like Kelly Hopkinsville did. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to say, and this, this believe it or not, this made sense when I, when I sort of wrote this, this, this episode out. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes you just have to look at a story and say, well, that's a hell of a thing, huh? That's wild. There's other stories like this that are, that are just as wild. What happened in Kelly, Kentucky? I don't know. I'm not sure if anybody does, and I'm not sure if anybody will ever be able to prove anything one way or the other, but it's a hell of a thing. Learning to embrace the inconclusive. It's just another educational benefit of living the saucer life. This was a difficult episode to write and to put together. This case is simultaneously massive, but very compact. There are things that are 
strange and and I think somewhat underexplored, but it's a case that so many people know about. Um, this was tough. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If if you didn't, I understand. Believe me when I say um, originally this was a probably going to run about a half hour, even longer. Um, but I, I cut it down out of consideration for your time and um, desperately trying to retain your attention. Links to materials used in the development of this episode are available in the show notes, including the outstanding work of Isabel Davis. The associate producer of The Saucer Life is Simpson J. Hanover III. The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of goblins along the lines of truth. Till next time, keep watching the gully because something crashed there and may pull your hair. <laughs>